the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Among those of us in public life, you can divide the world into these two groups, those who care about what the New York Times says about them and those who do not. The only way to moral clarity in this country is not to care about what the New York Times says about you. That's by way of introduction of an extremely important work that has just been published, titled The Gray Lady Winked. The Gray Lady is known as the New York Times. The New York Times, Misreporting Distortions and Fabrications Radically Alter History, is the subtitle. The author is Ashley Rinsberg, who when I read his biography, I would say qualifies as a Renaissance man, a novelist, essayist, freelance journalist, etc., etc. Born in South Africa, and then the rest is fascinating history. So, Ashley Rinsberg, welcome to the Dennis Prager Show. Thank you, Dennis. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you so much. What prompted you to write this book? Well, the, the book grew out of a, a chance occurrence when I was kind of thumbing through a copy of William Shirer's great book of history on World War II, The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. And in a footnote, Shirer just kind of noted almost casually that on the eve of World War II, the New York Times had run a story claiming that Poland had invaded Germany, which was... I was sitting in my chair and it just kind of almost you know, knocked me out of the chair. It was such a crazy idea that the New York Times could, could print something that was so wrong. It was so opposite to what we know is the truth about World War II. It was fundamental. And that launched me on a mission to understand how that happened, why that happened, what else happened like that. And that eventually evolved into a full book. That is mind-blowing. I didn't want to interrupt you. <laughs> I, I, I want to review it is, this. It, it really is. <laughs> well, I, I remember reading that in college. By the way, it is one of the most riveting works of history I have ever read. Uh, and, and I think it stands up in time, don't you? I, I absolutely do. And not only does his, his book or his books stand up, um, but his journalism does too. And, and that was really important, something that I went back and looked at how other journalists, how other news outlets were recovering, recovering um, events like World War II. And, you know, because it's easy to say, well, looking back, it's 2020, very nice of you, you did your research, great. But it, the reality was that people like Shire or Edward Murrow, they were reporting very much correctly. They were reporting on things like World War II or the Holocaust or many other events in history that the Times completely botched. These guys got it right, and the Times got it completely wrong. So it wasn't just about hindsight. Who did Shire uh, report for? Shire, I believe, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, that Shire was one of Murrow's boys. So that, um, was that NBC? He, what, what network? That's a good question. I'm, I'm, okay, fine. It doesn't, I'm it's not important. But, but Shire was not a yeah. New York Times reporter. 
No, no. Right, okay. I want to get back to your revelation. So you saw in, in, in was it a footnote, did you say? A footnote in... In, in, uh, yeah, in, in, in Shira's book, The Rise and Fall of Third Reich. So yes. uh, the New okay. York Times actually reported, th- this is what I said was mind-blowing, that Poland invaded Germany and not the other way around? Yeah, so the the lead story on that day in 1939 was basically a reprint of Nazi propaganda. Yes, that's what the Nazis claimed. That's right. It was it, they were responding to a Polish invasion. Exactly. Exactly. And and it it wasn't by chance, of course. This was these were very well-seasoned propagandists the, the Nazis and they decided they would launch the war by deceiving the, the world as to the fact. That would give them enough time, enough credibility. It would confuse the story enough to create a pause. And that's all they needed. As we know, they were one of their biggest strategies was using the, the blitz. Move fast. Storm. And just having the space of a few days where people said, oh, okay, well, if the Polish, these insurrectionists, actually did invade the, this German border town, then maybe the Germans are right to invade Poland. It kind of makes sense. And that's exactly what the Nazis wanted. But it all depended on getting this out into the world. And having it printed on the front page of the New York Times was, I would say, qualified as a uh, Okay, so that, remember, this was all in answer to my question, what prompted you to write this book about the New York Times mm-hmm. and its lies? So that footnote sort of triggered this whole thing in you. Yeah, I you know I think a lot of a lot of people like myself at the time and still today have a sense that something is up when you read certain stories or coverage in the mainstream media. You get a sense that you're not getting the full picture, and sometimes you even get a glimpse where you absolutely know you're not getting the full picture. In my case. I had been living in Israel, I still live in Israel, and I saw the Times reporting here, and I saw the reality on the ground here, and I said, there's just no way to reconcile these two things. There's, the reality is so divergent from what I'm reading in, in this illustrious newspaper, how can it be? And when I saw this little footnote in William Shire's book, I said, okay, there's something more here, there's something going on. And when I discovered what happened throughout the, the Times' coverage of World War II over the course of a decade, that's when I started to understand that that feeling that I had, that something was amiss, was actually real. It, it was what we called, you know, almost like being gaslighted when you discover, aha, it's not me, it's them. Well, uh, it, of course, it began even before the, the, uh, the 1939 German invasion, because they got the Pulitzer Prize for denying that the Ukrainians were having a famine. Yes, definitely, definitely. That, and that was um, at least on the same level, the same proportion as the, their coverage or their botched coverage of World War II, which is that famously a reporter named Walter Durante covered up the Ukraine famine. He denied it in his reporting. He was, I would say, the most famous English language reporter in the world at the time. He was a brilliant person, um, spoke five languages, Oxford educated. And the Times' narrative still today is that he was kind of a rogue reporter. He was slovenly. They really pinned it on him. But that isn't the story. 
Durante knew very well what was going on in Russia and, and Ukraine. He was there. He was on the ground. He was very well connected. He covered it up, it turns out, because he was instructed to. And this is the story the New York Times has never really let out, and I've never really seen it pieced together or told in this way. You know, the question is, why would Durante do this? Why would he risk his whole career, his journalistic reputation to, to peddle a, such a big lie? I mean, the Ukraine famine was big news. It was a big story. And if you're a journalist, you want that story. You don't want to cover up the story. You don't want to make it seem as if there's no story. So that's the question. Why did he do it? And it's a question no one really asks. And the answer to it is because the New York Times' ownership wanted it to be told in this way, because they were pushing for American official recognition of the USSR. It was the early days of the Soviet regime. And you could not convince the American public that the government should recognize this regime if it had just killed two to three million of its own people. It turns out the number was actually much greater than that, but that, that's what was known at the time. And they buried it for that reason, and it worked. The FDR recognized the USSR. It was with Walter Durante's help, uh, who really shepherded the process, and everybody kind of got what they wanted aside from the American public. And the Why did he get a Pulitzer Prize? Were they as corrupt as the New York Times? You know, it's one of these things that's very hard to digest. And it's that the, the reporter who, in what, during World War II, on the eve of World War II, printed the Nazi lies on the front page of the New York Times, received a Pulitzer. There were two, the New York Times reporter who called the Berlin Nazi Olympics the greatest sporting event of all time. Who, who said that? Who, who said that? His, this was a man named um, Frederick Birchall. Who is, he doesn't have the profile of a Durante. Right. I, no, no, I, I, I was just curious. I, I'm, I'm, I'm impressed that you even remembered the name. But that's what he wrote from Berlin in the New York Times? That's what he reported from Berlin. Um, and that was a lot of the Times' coverage was very much carrying, carrying that water. And again, the, the, the Berlin Olympics were very clearly a propaganda. The book takes us right through the 20th century um, you know, a, a big one for me personally is the Holocaust, which obviously the, the reporting was, or the non-reporting, I should say, was concurrent with their World War II debacle. Um, but the Times from New York chose effectively to, quote-unquote, bury the Holocaust. They did not cover it. They acted as if it didn't, it wasn't happening. And if you were reading their newspaper day by day, when reports were coming out of the deaths of 700,000 Jews, a million Jews. I mean, we're talking about an, an epic story, a story of uh, once in a, in a generation or, or even bigger than that. And they just were silent. And again, it it's kind of boggles the mind. This is a news gathering organization. They, their mission in life is to bring people the fact. And this is a fact of all facts. People were being slaughtered in mass in Europe by a so-called civilized nation. And that, to me, was really the height of it, because that's more than failure, more than even malfeasance. That, that's something of a, on a tragic level. And diving into it, again, the question I kept bumping up against was, how could such a thing happen? How? And the answer there was a very disturbing answer, and it, and it touches on... Everything that I think we, we've learned about 
false media narratives and why they happen, why they go wrong. And in this case, it was because there's a dynasty, a dynastic family in control of the New York Times, no checks and balances on them. They own the company. They are the publisher. They appoint the editors. They can do whatever they want, and they did. And in this case, they were afraid of being seen as a Jewish newspaper. That was part of it. They were afraid it would hurt their newspaper, hurt their business. And on the other hand, they had some very esoteric theories about what it meant to be a Jewish person or Jew and what it didn't mean. And for them, it didn't mean it. It didn't mean that you were part of a nation. It just meant you worshipped in a particular way. So the fact that, quote-unquote, Jewish people were being slaughtered in Europe didn't, didn't mean anything to them. It was just other people, part of the war, wasn't anything particular. But we know for a fact that the Holocaust was a war within the war. It was fought. If, you know, Hitler had been on record saying, if nothing else happens, if, so long as he destroys the Jewish people, he will have succeeded. And the Times completely just chose to ignore that for both ideological reasons and for interest-related reasons, reasons of, of power, of money, and prestige. How did the New and York Times, given, given its record of lying, how did it become mm-hmm. known as the paper of record? Up until that point, the paper had been a, a very well-respected and, and quote-unquote gray. I mean, that's where the name the gray lady comes from, is that the reporting was pretty down the line. Um, the founder of the dynasty I was just talking about was a German-Jewish immigrant to America who loved America and appreciated all that it had done for him. His name was Adolf Fox. And he decided that he would report the news without fear or favor. That's his famous proclamation. He wrote it in the New York Times as a business announcement. And he kept to his word. For as long as he was there at the helm, you were... They reported things in a very gray manner. They brought the facts. They, they tried to keep things pretty sedate. Um, but, you know, that's a, this is the nature of a dynasty, is that the founder might be have great intentions and good ideals and good values. But what happens with a dynasty, with something we see over and over in politics and media and business, is that the rest of the dynasty down the line are more interested in maintaining or growing their wealth and their power and their prestige than they are in fulfilling the original ideals of the founder. And that's exactly what's happened at the times. And, you know, these are, these are individuals, they're people, they are not imbued with special powers, but they've been given this huge amount of power. I mean, it's, it's, we lose sight of it. We think of this as just a newspaper, but it's not. It is an, an institution, a business and a company that controls how we perceive the world. It controls how we understand what's going on around us. And that is a lot of power for a very small number of people. So President Trump's claim fake media it well, well predates his presidency. Yes. Yes, he does. And, you know, that, that term fake media and fake news, that became a political football in and of itself. And it sort of distorted the, the deeper issue was that the real issue here is that there are false media narratives. They happen and they don't just happen. It doesn't just, they don't just fall out of the sky. It's somebody is making a decision. Somebody is deciding that we are going to do this in a coordinated and deliberate and concerted way because, you know, you can publish a story about something that's false. And most people won't notice it, and those that do, half of them won't believe it anyways. In order to build what I've called a false media narrative, 
you need a lot of energy, a lot of people, a lot of resources pounding away at this same message. You really are trying to do this. And that's, this is where we have to be very careful because this is, this is the, something that's precious in a democracy, which is trust in information, trust in our media. Well, democracy dies in darkness. <laughs> the motto of the Washington Post. You, in 2010, Rinsberg traveled to Nicaragua to investigate the disappearance and death of his best friend. Mm-hmm. There's nothing else said about that, and I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm very, very uh, intrigued. D- did you find out why he disappeared? Um, no, um, it, it's not clear, actually. I went... And I was there for a few months in Nicaragua. I went, I hiked up um, with guides and, and harnesses and ropes and everything to this volcano where my friend disappeared and was eventually found. His remains were found. And we, nobody knows why why that happened or how that happened um, still to this day, unfortunately. Where is he buried? He's buried in San Diego. Um, California, where where he, he was from, where I grew up with him, and we were uh, fast friends from an early age, and uh, we went to university together. And after university, he was working in theater, and decided to take this trip to Nicaragua, and, and never came back. Wow, I'm very sorry uh, about that. Losing a friend is horrible. Yeah. It's horrible. It is. All right, let's go back to the New York Times, about which you have written here. So let's go to, uh, there are two more, at least two more subjects I want to get to about the truth and the New York Times, Cuba and Vietnam. So we'll take it in chronological order, and then we'll start start, uh, with uh, Cuba. Yeah. Yeah, Cuba... um you know, Cuba was was one of these cases where Vietnam is is a case. The New York Times' involvement there is a little bit more complex. Cuba is actually quite straightforward, which is that in the late 1950s, Fidel Castro, the man we know today as Cuba's dictator, a former dictator, was all but defeated. Right? He was down to his last few men, no money, hiding out in the mountains in Cuba. They weren't even bothering to look for him at that point, the Batista regime. They had stopped searching because it didn't really matter. He was kind of nothing. Then comes along this New York Times reporter by the name of Herbert Matthews, who decides he's going to track down this rebel and interview him, which he does. And But the decision Matthews makes is to turn this rebel, this lone rebel, into Cuba's democratic messiah. And, and he actually uses these words. He speaks about, in his reporting, he spoke about Fidel Castro as a messiah, as a prophet, as, you know, the savior of Cuba, democratic savior. And through this notoriety, because the Times, like today, was so important, so influential, maybe even more so than the now, that suddenly Castro is a celebrity. He gets money, he gets guns, he gets attention, most importantly of all. And that really is what launched him onto the world stage, made him relevant, and put him in a position to overthrow the the Batista regime in Cuba. And this was to the point that 
that Castro later came to the New York Times, not once, not even twice, three times at very least, three times we know about, to thank the publishers of the New York Times for what they did for him. Was Herbert Matthews a communist? No, actually. Herbert Matthews was a very romantic reporter. He had all these ideas about... Uh, okay, he were, so he romanticized, and, like they romanticized Che Guevara. Yeah, exactly. All right, so, he, so he was one of these him. fellow travelers. That, that's what he was. All right, so they lied yeah, about he, uh, they lied about Castro, and now we're going to go to uh, Vietnam. And you say it's a, more of a mixed record. Well, Vietnam was it's more. I would say it's more complex. I think what happened there is pretty clear cut, which is that the New York Times is at that time he was a young uh, sort of rising reporter. He's twenty nine years old, named David Halberstam, and a colleague who would later replace him named Neil Sheehan. And the two of them decided that they were not there to just cover the news or gather the facts. They were there to have a hand in the events unfolding. And they did not like certain things about the way the war was being run, including the fact that the U.S. had partnered with the South Vietnamese government, led by a man named Diem, to to try to... Right. All right. Hold on there. This is really important. The New York Times, the book... The great lady winked us up at my website. The Dennis Prager Show. Just spoke, by the way, this weekend in Dallas at the Texas Homeschool Convention. What terrific people. Their kids are lucky. Aside from they're learning a lot more than in the average school, they are actually happy. They're not jaded. They're not ungrateful for being Americans. My guest here is Ashley Rinsberg about how much the New York Times has not told the truth. And it's it's a revelatory book. Glenn Greenwald, who's a man of the left, but who is intellectually honest, writes, The New York Times, by far the most influential newspaper in the world, and thus receives far too little journalistic scrutiny due to its power to affect careers. Any book that casts a critical eye on the paper of records history, as this book does, is performing a valuable service. In an account brimming, this is Daniel Pipes. With fascinating, if morbid, detail, Ashley Rinsberg rigorously exposes the dark side of the New York Times. Not sure that there's any longer anything but a dark side, but that's another issue. So you were talking about that we were we have covered the Berlin Olympics. We have covered the Ukraine famine induced by Stalin, created by Stalin. We have talked about the denial, or the not denial, just the omission of Holocaust reporting. We talked about the building up of Fidel Castro. Now we are at the New York Times and Vietnam. Now you mentioned David Halberstam, and who was the other person? The other person was Neil Sheehan, who was later, after Halberstam left Vietnam, he, Sheehan became the Vietnam correspondent for the Times. And Halberstam was also with the New York Times, right. 
So yeah, he wrote That's the right. he wrote the best and brightest, which was very influential about yeah. our mistake about Vietnam. Okay, so go ahead. So between the two of them, Halberstam and Sheehan, they they decided they they were not pleased with how the war, war was being fought and and the 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 alliance between the U.S. and the South Vietnamese government. They, for whatever reason, they felt their the values were misaligned. Whatever it was, the the key thing is that they decided to take matters into their own hands, and they understood that they were they already had something in their hands that was very powerful, which is the New York Times or or in Sheehan's case, his reporting at UPI, and they could start to shape a different kind of narrative, and that's exactly what they started to do. They started to seed this idea that the Number one, the Kennedy administration was increasingly unhappy with the South Vietnamese government. And number two, that the South Vietnamese government, the, the leadership, were unhinged crazies um, that were doing all sorts of repressive things like massacring Buddhists, uh, Buddhist monks. And in one case, Halberstam reported for The New York Times that the, the South Vietnamese government had killed 30 Buddhist monks. Uh, the problem was that it just never happened. Not only were not 30 killed, zero Buddhist monks were killed. And this is the same kind of thing where you, you're coloring, you're using this kind of misreporting to color perceptions of this government, to make them seem as if they're evil and illegitimate and not worthy of U.S. support. And this, this reporting was directed through certain channels of the American government that were also in favor of it overthrow the South Vietnamese government, and it was used on that basis to to perform this uh, coup, this coup d'état, which happened when Kennedy, President Kennedy, found out about the coup, which resulted in the president, the South Vietnamese president, being executed. Um, his defense sec- secretary, Robert McNamara, said he had never seen Kennedy more upset than on that day, because not only was GM, the South Vietnamese president, a fellow Catholic of Kennedy's. But Kennedy also knew that the only way for him to pull the U.S. out of Vietnam was if there were a stable South Vietnamese government. And the moment that GM was executed and his government overthrown, that option went out the window. And as we know, it was another many years, I think it was close to a decade at that point, of war in Vietnam on account of the interference of these two young barely 30-year-old reporters in Vietnam who had their own ideas. And then there's the Tet Offensive. Do you cover that? No, I, I didn't go into that. I did research it um, a bit, and, you know, from from what I understand, it was, um, there were some complexities there, but I, I didn't include it. In okay, it. that's fine. So what's is there a next big lie after Vietnam? Yeah, there there was another chapter after Vietnam. I mean, it's chronologically it's earlier, which is the atomic bombing of Japan by the United States, which there was uh, everybody knew about. It was reported after it happened. The lie that was perpetrated that was that there was no such thing as radiation poisoning, which is what the U.S. government wanted people to believe. And in order to help spread that belief, they put the New York Times' chief science writer, a man named William Lawrence on their payroll. And in exchange, the New York Times got to put their man on one of the bombers as part of the armada that was headed to Nagasaki to drop the second nuclear bomb. 
So I asked you about uh, post-Vietnam, and of course you do cover post-Vietnam because you cover the, the, the 1619 Project. Our yeah. founding ideals were false, and they make up this falsehood, which is now in thousands of schools. And the Russian collusion on the, on the Trump campaign, the, the, the lies from the New York Times are, 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 are coming so fast and furious that uh, it, it sort of uh, is at least as great as any in the past. So you, 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 you did cover the, uh, that woke issue. Any final thought? Um, yeah, the woke issue is in the sixteen nineteen project is I think one of the most damaging in the entire book because this is not anymore trying to cover anything up. They're saying it on the face. They're saying we are trying to change history. That they use those words, so they have thrown truth out the window with the sixteen nineteen project, which is which explains why there are so many huge bombastic errors. And the idea there is that those errors that everybody was catching when the project came out aren't errors. They, they, are, they are intentional distortions. As I've said before, it's that if you're trying to change history, you literally have to change it. And that's what the New York Times has been, is still doing with the 1619 project. And I think that to me is the, the most insidious of all these examples. And it's the one that we're watching happen in front of our eyes. Well... You could write the same book about the Washington Post, almost the same. Certainly the Los Angeles Times, CNN. I mean, it is a very, very bad thing, the media in the West. You're living in Israel. What do you think of the media there? Um, you know, I think here it's much more mixed. There is, um, it's much more, there, there's more diversity in a way. I mean, the U.S. media is... I think, very concentrated. It's concentrated in ownership. It's concentrated in ideology. And here there's a little bit more diversity. There's more, um, there's more constituencies that the media here are speaking to, though there are some of the same trends as well here right? and everywhere else in the world. All right, listen, let me congratulate you on your book, and I have a feeling that a lot of my listeners will be reading it. The Gray Lady Winked. How the New York Times is misreporting distortions and fabrications radically alter history. Congratulations, Ashley Rinsberg. Thank you so much, Dennis. It was a real pleasure and privilege. Thank you. Okay, everybody, take care. We continue.